Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we discuss the chaos roiling America, learned about urban composting, and heard about the new American migration. All this plus the Trump Diaries, Size Matters, and AWCYFM, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for October 2nd, 2020. Chuck Mertz chatted with Abram Lusgarden about how climate change is forcing a new American migration. As cities heat up and coastal areas flood, Americans will be forced to move to new areas in the nation, increasing stress on what is already a creaky infrastructure. Can America respond to the climate emergency? This is Hell airs every Sunday at 10. The world is already experiencing migration forced upon them by climate change. They are fleeing the most vulnerable parts of the planet, and more often than not, those fleeing such areas are often the most marginalized and the poor. So where do those escaping climate change go? And when we do flee for higher ground, what will we eat? When we get there, will there be food and water, the necessities of life? Here to help us better understand what our future very well may be, senior environmental reporter Abram Luskarten is the author of the article, Climate Change Will Force a New American Migration, which is the result of a partnership between ProPublica and the New York Times Magazine with support from the Pulitzer Center. Welcome to This Is Hell, Abram. Hi there. Thanks for having me. It's great having you on the show. And before we continue, I, or even start, uh, I just got to say that your work and uh, the writing of Killing the Colorado was just spectacular. And then the following uh, 2016 Discovery Channel film that you co-produced was really great. And if anybody out there has not read that article or seen that show, you definitely have to watch because it is an amazing article about policymaking, about the way that we think about the environment about how the whole western side of the west of the Mississippi works. So that it's just fantastic work and I just wanted to make sure I told you. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. You write that over two weeks in August, 900 blazes incinerated six times as much land as all the state's 2019 wildfires combined. This is in California, forcing 100,000 people from their homes. Three of the largest fires in history burned simultaneously in a ring around the San Francisco Bay Area. Another fire burned just 12 miles from your home in Marin County. You watched as towering plumes of smoke billowed from distant hills in all directions and air tankers crisscrossed the skies. Like many Californians, you spent those weeks worrying about what might happen next, wondering how long it would be before an inferno of 60-foot flames swept up the steep grassy hillside on its way toward my own home, rehearsing in my mind what my family would do to escape. So speaking of what happens next, CNN yesterday quoted a 38-year-old Oakland resident explaining why he was considering leaving California. He said it's not necessarily this year of wildfires so much as the dam breaking on the realization that this is not just the new normal, but just a prelude to what's coming and just being sort of tired of this being normal. And then he says that he is going to go to New York to flee California and all the environmental issues he has there. How good of choices are people making? How good are the choices that people are making when it comes to decisions on where to go in response to climate change? Is going to New York City or New York State a good place for Californians to go to avoid the environmental problems that they've been facing over the last few years? 
Well, it depends on on where in New York he wants to go. Uh, New York City is going to survive long into the future, uh, but it's going to have its own climate problems to contend with, sea level rise uh, being chief among them. So, you know, to the extent that New York is an example of how a city will invest in a seawall to hold the the sea back, uh, New York will be fine. Uh, He'll at least uh, escape the wildfires. You know, as a part of this project, when we tried to analyze uh, really the best and the newest climate data that was out there to look at all sorts of, of threats and to map them across the country. So, you know, um, the wildfires feel the most uh, imminent, uh, you know, and, and current for us here in California, where I am, but, um, you know, the South faces heat waves and the Southeast faces sea level rise and the Midwest faces decline in crop yields and uh, and the, the Southwest faces, you know, water shortages. And when you look at all of those together, you start to get a sense uh, of, uh, you know, the walls closing in. Um, not a lot of places left to go, at least places that will be unaffected. So, you know, I think um, this movement that I anticipate of population is going to happen slowly. It's probably just beginning. There's going to be some trial and error, uh, but it's going to be a lot of personal decision making about which uh, which kind of risks people are most comfortable living with. You said New York City was is going to survive. There are those who are more skeptical and don't think that New York City is going to survive. How does it survive? The way that you were describing it as a walled-off area, will these major metropolitan areas that are impossible to abandon because of whatever uh, financial dependency or economic dependency we have on them, will they look like islands? It's really hard to know, but uh, I mean, one of the the greatest indicators for ability to you know to withstand uh, the change climate changes that are coming is you know the strength of your economy and how much money uh, you know local governments or municipalities cities have to invest in you know in building resilience in helping people to adapt to it. And so you know, part of my story focuses on the places that won't have those resources and what happens to small towns or you know places along the coast of uh, Georgia or North Carolina or, you know, so forth that won't have a tax base to invest in really huge, expensive infrastructure. Um, But cities like New York or for that matter, you know, Shanghai, another major global city that's threatened by sea level rise, um, you know, no place has more capital uh, and more economically at stake than uh, than than those cities, uh, San Francisco being another one. So, you know, the likelihood that they'll be able to invest in innovation and find some solution is much, much greater. And, um, you know, the stakes of retreating from a place like that are so much uh, of so much greater consequence that, you know, I, I, most of the experts I talk to think that there, you know, there will be a solution. Um, the you know the drawings the architectural sort of renderings that i see of 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 the new york area you know might mean uh, a seawall that's erected across the opening to uh you know to the bay so uh I mean, New York's already an island, and uh, or Manhattan is anyway. Uh, but uh, but basically, you know, keeping the higher sea, you know, seas out at the ocean and not allowing them to come into, um, you know, the New York Harbor and uh, and the Hudson River and the, and the surrounding waterways at all. So where will we get the resources to build that kind of infrastructure? We're being told right now that, you know, people uh, blame uh, President Trump for making the deficit as high as it is right now. So where are we going to be getting these resources to do these huge projects if at the same time other areas of the country are being inundated with climate change? So inevitably, um, you know, adapting is going to be expensive. And one of the, you know, the 
issues that comes up in my reporting is the need to plan for that uh, and the need for cities and, and governments of all sorts and sizes to prepare. Uh, and, and that's difficult because, you know, as you're getting at, you know, infrastructure development is behind already in this country. So, so going from a position of being behind and finding the resources to get ahead of the curve is going to be immensely challenging. Um, but the consensus in my reporting is that that's really the only uh, option. I mean, the alternative to that is a real sort of devolution of, um, you know, of organized and stable society. So, so it's probably going to happen, uh, you know, and in all likelihood, the money's going to come through, uh, through taxes of various sorts. I mean, it, it's going to be expensive and um, people are going to have to pay for it one way or another. And they'll do that through taxes on their food, on their property, on their, you know, purchases, uh, and, and perhaps through, you know, other government investments as well. You point out that obviously climate change refugees are often the most poor, the most marginalized. What happens when climate change and extreme poverty mix? Does migration caused by climate change mean poverty moving to where it does not exist now? Does it mean that the world will soon be confronted by global poverty in a way that it has not in the past and may in fact address it because we'll be so confronted with it? Uh, yes, is <laughs> the short answer to, to all of those questions. I mean, my, my work began uh, with a more global view. This story about the United States is the second in a series, and the first in that series looked at uh, migration in response to climate change globally. And, you know, the fact is that the places on the planet, uh, the hottest places close to the equator in North Africa, in Central America, in South Asia, um, that will witness the most destructive and the swiftest uh, and most severe degrees of climate change are are also the poorest parts of the planet. And so, you know, as a general rule, uh, it's going to be increasingly difficult for those regions affecting many hundreds of millions of people to produce enough food and already impoverished regions are going to get poorer and more likely, uh, you know, to move and to migrate. And so that's sort of the genesis for, you know, for this body of reporting. Um, while the the, you know, the dynamic in the United States is going to be a little less extreme than, say, you know, Africans moving out of the, the North Sahel. Uh, it's the, the essential, you know, dynamic is, is more or less the same. Climate will affect the most, most vulnerable parts of the population first. Um, Climate has made the the most vulnerable and impoverished uh, and and often minority segments of American population more vulnerable as it is, and it makes the solutions less available to them uh, going forward. So, you know, the the risk is that you'll see deepening poverty uh, come in several ways. One is, you know, as as migrants move to cities, um, rapid urbanization is expected, and if those cities can't accommodate an influx of people and support them in terms of jobs and housing and uh, basic infrastructure and and other things that lead to a high quality of life, then you know poverty in those cities will uh, will deepen uh, and its stress on social structure will will deepen as well. Uh, the other side of the equation is you know the places that get left behind is you know it takes some wealth to have mobility to move uh, and uh, the communities that have the least wealth will be the least likely to evolve in the face of climate change. And so you'll see trapped communities and trapped populations that have an ever diminishing tax base, uh, uh, ever diminishing job market, uh, steadily lowering incomes and economic prosperity. Um, and will they are already behind and will fall further and further behind.
Nancy Clem chatted with members of the Rust Belt Riders, a worker-owned cooperative of people that collects waste food to make compost. Clem discusses just how much food waste there is in our nation, why composting and carbon capture is so important, and what the future holds for urban agriculture. Spontaneous Vegetation airs every other Sunday at 5 p.m. So I have three of the nine, is it, writers? Yeah, that's right. Growing in numbers. <laughs> yeah. I want to I wanna hear a little bit about, um, from each of you, uh, when you joined up and why. So Nathan, I think you're at the inception of this. Um, I'd like you to start. Sure. I'm not one of the original Rust Bell writers, but oh, we have one aren't. at the table. Um, I met up with them formally in 2017, April of 2017 or so, um, after I had simultaneously been picking up coffee grounds by bicycle myself and bringing them to my house and putting them in a pile and making bad compost and then learning to make much better compost. Um, I had spent some time, I was working downtown Cleveland for an environmental nonprofit and I rode my bicycle by uh, coffee shops and I had high lead in my soil in my backyard and I got landscape soil delivered once and it was really lousy stuff. And so I said, well, heck, I'll make my own. Um, and then I didn't really uh, pay any attention to what the actual carbon nitrogen ratio of a five gallon bucket of coffee grounds is. And eventually I separated that stuff out and it turned out that it was like mm, two thirds grounds and one third filters. And so my ratio was uh, basically exactly opposite what it should have been. <laughs> so, so who, do I have an original uh, Rust Belt writer on the, on the uh, call today? Yep, uh, that, that's me, uh, Michael here. Hey, Michael. Hi, Nancy, how are you? Hey, how did you get started in 2014? Oh, wow. So, um, uh, Daniel Brown and myself, uh, Daniel's the other co-founder. Um, at the time, uh, we had just finished up our, our philosophy degrees from uh, schools actually in Chicago. We were at, uh, Dan was at DePaul, and I was at Loyola. I'm actually originally from Illinois. Um, I grew up in Aurora, um, and uh, yeah, we finished up our philosophy degrees, and uh, like a lot of uh, folks that studied philosophy, we immediately got jobs in the food service industry. Um, <laughs> so we were working at restaurants and saw, uh, similar to what Nathan had described, a combination of these issues of seeing mass amounts of food scraps going into landfills while also living in a city um, that had uh, really poor soil. And that was Daniel's from Cleveland. So after we graduated from the schools in Chicago, uh, Daniel moved back here. Um, I came through on a, I was on a bicycle trip from Chicago. Uh, the end goal was Philadelphia. I didn't quite make it that far, but we came through uh, Cleveland on the trip. Uh, I fell in love with Cleveland and uh, moved here shortly after. And while working in restaurants here, Dan and I, yeah, noticed that there were a lot of food, there's a lot of food waste going to landfills. Um, while working in the restaurants. And then also we had a community garden in Cleveland that had really poor soils, just as Nathan had described. Um, so from there, we decided that we would pull together some uh, some cash and get a bicycle on a bicycle trailer and start hauling the food scraps from the restaurants to the community gardens. And uh, that was that was the beginning of Rustball Riders. RMA, how did you get uh, attracted to all this? 
So I actually bought compost from Rust Belt Riders for my own garden maybe two summers ago, um, mm. which was a very intense experience because I didn't know that their uh, sort of headquarters was right down the street from me, sort of in this weird industrial zone that I've been both living and working in for a couple of years now. So I just wandered into the warehouse and had the lovely surprise of meeting Nathan Rust. And I was like, this is just way too weird not to follow up. Um, <laughs> so uh, I got in touch with him and he let me come on a ride along. And then um, about half a year later, uh, they were hiring and I was looking for work. So I've been doing some food scrap hauling and some soil making and some uh, office accounting finance stuff ever since. Wow. So how does everybody else get attracted to you? Are they just, they just see you in action and, and, and jump in? Pretty much. <laughs> like this uh, is the dirty are, crowd I mean, we want to run mean, with. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, I think there's a, there's a, uh, David Graver, rest in peace, um, in power. He wrote, you know, his last book was bullshit jobs, a theory. And so much work is just not worth doing um in the world as it is and so i think it's just like when people know that we exist and see us out there and and doing stuff we end up with a stack of resumes because <laughs> it's so direct and meaningful especially especially how you particularly work on it so i want to get into that um i think i'm really interested in um a couple factors of your work that you're connected so closely to um larger um goals of vertical integration of systems so before we get into that really deep stuff i want to just ask you how did you decide that you were going to not only just be food scrap haulers which are what most people who call their comp composting businesses as they're just hauling to industrial sites that you decided you were going to take on the challenge of actually making really beautiful compost as well. Um, so why did you decide to do both of those things and how did you um, find a site to do that on just to begin? So, so for the, from the integration perspective, I think like uh, we talk about, as Nathan, Nathan's mentioned, you know, thinking in systems. So the, uh, I like to think that we're working towards bringing the integration one step further to cyclical integration. Okay. So um, it's funny that you mentioned, you know, how did you start with, you know, what made you decide to make the compost and do the hauling? Well, the end goal here, we actually really want to be farmers, but we have to, we had to go like a couple of steps forward to uh, eventually get into farming in the way that I think we all want to. So um, uh, yeah, I think that, it, ultimately it was being on the like growing food is what brought us to growing and eating the food was what brought us to working our way all the way back to well, we actually have to start with the food scraps and the food waste and and uh work our way to growing the food so that we can eat it uh. i think also it was I, well, when you all started um the thought was we're going to haul these food scraps by bicycle to these community gardens, and these folks are going to make make the scraps into compost for themselves, and then they didn't do it. And so then you <laughs> ended up having to be slopping through piles of food scraps, turning piles a bit. And then meanwhile, I was I got obsessed with uh, compost quality because I took classes from Dr. Elaine Ingham, um, 
and got really interested in the soil biology. And then, you know, by luck and circumstance, like I read radical mycology and that's how I heard about you, Nancy Clem, because I saw uh, a week long class with Peter McCoy and Nancy Clem. I was like, who is this person? Must be interesting. Um, and, you know, then I heard about Vermont compost and then just, just I think being curious people and then realizing that there's just not most industrial large municipal compost is just not the quality needed to actually uh, grow delicious, vigorous plants. Yeah. And so how did you get a site and how did you um, decide on doing wind, windrows as your process? So maybe describe where you're doing this. Well, I, I want to describe briefly again where we were doing it, which okay. was uh, a parking lot, essentially. And Ohio's composting regulations are such that if your operations are small enough by square footage, but not by cubic footage, uh, there's, <laughs> there's an amount you can do that's unregulated. Unbelievable. And, yeah, so, so we got started in quality compost on a very small site um, in an unregulated fashion um, with, you know, Michael's early idea was, oh, can we make towers? Yeah, we got compost towers, like big silos. Because that way we could meet the square footage uh, regulation. Right. Um, so then we, we, we were like, okay, how can we make, we, we realized that we couldn't sell enough, make enough compost on this tiny site because the, the, initially the limit was 300 square feet of active compost. And yeah. then um, Michael and Dan got the Ohio EPA to nudge that rule out to a bit to 500 square feet. Um, and we were doing that and we were, you know, had some particular ways of counting, oh, it's just the piles that are active right now and it's their footprint, not the area on which we're operating is the 500 square feet. Um, and we had to think, how are we going to try to make any kind of money from this tiny um, footprint? And so that's how we got into potting soils. And then meanwhile, um, Michael made a lot of incredible connections while he was working as a bartender. Yeah, so um, <laughs> there's a, uh, I like this, we, we joke about how in the early days, so when we first started doing this on the bicycles, we you know kept our um, our jobs in the restaurants and um, it was nice because we could do composting work and food waste hauling during the day and then we'd go in for our restaurant shift in the evening um, we're taking a really good shower first most of the time Hey Kyle, thanks for coming by I um I needed to talk to you about my new job and the radio show. New job? Wait, wait a second here. New job? What you gonna be doing? Well, it's pretty cool. I'm gonna be reviewing some maps and plans for some guys that I know. It's like um like building blueprints, mostly like banks. You gonna have those pens with got the chain on it? I sell those under Viaduct. I'll let you know, but. The thing is, I'm going to be working a lot of afternoons and nights, yeah. so I'm not going to be able to record but, as many shows. But you're my biographer. How are we going to tell the story of my life? I'm sorry, Kyle. I, I'm just not going to be able to hop a train with you in the middle of the night anymore. I, I have responsibilities. But what about the curse, Jess? You're too young. The what? The curse of size matters. <laughs> it's horrible. Oh, jeez. 
Kyle, you're making this up. Oh, no, 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 no. You see, Jess, you're not the first producer that this show has ever had. I know that. I took over from John. John wasn't my first producer either. Size Matters has had seven producers before you. Seven? Sometimes I lay awake at night and I see little Robbie's face just before... Oh, Jess, it's too painful, Dagger. Uh, the curse is real. I'm begging you, don't do this. I don't know. This sounds suspiciously like some of your old-timey oh, hokum. Oh, jeez. John seemed fine when we saw him, like, two weeks ago. Oh, poor, oh, poor sweet John. Always had my back. Always ready to shave my back. We need to check on him, Jess. Well, if it would put your mind at ease, he lives right around the corner. We can just go see him. Come on. Whoa, this is John's place. Yikes, it looks condemned. I thought he had one of them swanky bachelor pads at that rotating hot tub and fondue thing. He did. Are you sure this is the right address? Yeah, this is South Aberdeen. Funny, this is the only house left here now. A lot of vacant lots. Yeah, and roving packs of wild dogs. And tire fires. Johnny, it's Kyle, your pal Kyle. Johnny! Uh, I guess he's, uh... Oh, door's open. Should we just go in? Oh, what is that ah. smell? Smells like a dump took a dump on another dump. Oh. What's Johnny been eating? <laughs> Look at all this garbage. Are you sure this house isn't abandoned? Oh, Kyle, over ho, here. Ho, 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 ho. I think... Oh, John, are you all right? I don't know who the flock you are, but get the flock out. I think he's drunk on giggly juice. Is that Kyle? <laughs> you son of John, a bitch. John, come come down. Down. <laughs> Give me that hand. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. John, John settle down. What, we just came by to see you. What the hell happened here? Ouch. What, what happened? <laughs> what happened? Calm down, bud. I lost everything. <laughs> and it's all Kyle's fault here. <laughs> How? You still got that flashback noise? Oh, yeah. Ah, boy. I had just handed off size matters to Jess. For the first time in years, I felt a huge weight off of my shoulders. No more creepy requests to supervise bathing. No more late-night calls from Eddie asking me to get Kyle out of the basement. I had a new job. I had a new life. Everything was coming up Petrowski. But then, disaster struck. As I was coming home one night, a giant sewer main exploded, destroying most of the houses on my block and leveling my yard. Overnight, I went from being a friendly neighbor to being an outcast, and all because Kyle rerouted Undertown's waste pipes in a scheme to collect burp gas. Oh, yeah, I, uh, I was involved in that. That stench permeated everything. That smell, it's in me. I went from being able to show my face at an office to being a rag boy at the Admiral. Are you drinking gasoline? Yeah, it messes your stomach up a bit, but it gives you a good buzz. Oh, John, this is awful. Oh. Being a rag boy is worse mm. than leprosy. Oh, you're telling me I lost everything thanks to you. Kyle, we gotta oh, do something. Just like that, I'm out of gas. It's the curse, I tell you, as it claims everyone. It's, Don't even worry about me. Nonsense. Look at me. All we have to do is get you cleaned up and back to work. <laughs> you don't understand. That smell, man, it's everywhere. That smell's never going there. I, I, I am the smell, man. I am stink. Hold on, I got <laughs> an idea here. Oh, 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 oh. 
almost certain we're not supposed to put people through a car wash. Yeah, it's a good thing Johnny's drunk, or this might probably definitely hurt him. Well, you smell better. Yeah, he does. Freshly simonized. Now, Johnny, here, I got some clothes for you. Try these on. This is a pirate flouncy shirt, and and this is a this is a bra. Did you, Kyle? Did you steal this from the co-pro? Nah, it's a trick. As they moved out, but I broke into the house and I took a bunch of stuff. And I got you an interview. It's with some old work buddies of mine. It's in radio. Well, yeah, it's in communications. You'll be using a radio. Sure. Uh, it's kind of like a like a surveillance thing. They'll they'll explain it when you get there. Gee, Jess, I can't thank you enough. And and Kyle, I'm sorry I misjudged uh, you. It happens to the best of us, Johnny. You know, I, I really do feel like I can get a fresh start. Yes, I'm going to get on yeah. this bus. Oh, oh hey, and John. I'm going uh, to bus go stops downtown up at the corner. and Just get this be job. Be careful. <laughs> this is the Peak. first uh, time Hey, Johnny, you got to get out of the traffic I'm there, so buddy. Well, really, stuff. you guys are the best friends a guy can oh! oh! Yikes. Well, on the bright side, he's moving a little. Curse, huh? Indeed, the curse. Well, I'll see you next week, Kyle. That's my girl. This week on the Trump Diaries, Trump's taxes are leaked. They show massive debts and years of tax avoidance. Trump nominates an arch-conservative to succeed Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Trump is barred from ending the census early. Trump is jeered at Ginsburg's wake. And an ugly debate goes south quickly for Trump. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 1345, September 25th. The U.S. surpassed 7 million confirmed cases of COVID-19. The U.S. had reached 6 million cases less than a month ago. One million have died worldwide now from COVID. Over 200,000 have died in the United States. The Pentagon is discussing what to do if Trump invokes the Insurrection Act and orders active duty military to quell protests during the election. Defense Department officials said top generals could resign if Trump orders the active duty military into the streets to quell protests. Meanwhile, according to a Justice Department prosecutor, there is internal concern that Attorney General William Barr will join post-election lawsuits on behalf of the Trump campaign or its allies. A federal judge has barred Trump from ending the 2020 census a month early. That ruling came after evidence filed this week showed that top Census Bureau officials believed ending the headcount early would seriously endanger its accuracy. Trump ordered the early end anyway, believing it would aid Republicans. Chaos at the post office continues as a fourth judge ordered Lewis DeJoy to immediately reverse changes he made. The judge cited internal post office documents that linked changes behind mail slowdowns to top executives. DeJoy also told a judge the USPS can't reassemble the high-speed mail sorting machines that were taken apart this year. But DeJoy contradicted Trump in court saying, quote, the Postal Service will do its job to deliver the ballots. When Trump goes into the Postal Service doesn't, is not equipped to do it, which he is incorrect with that. We're equipped to do it and we're going to deliver ballots. In a related story, the Postal Service stopped updating the national change of address system for three weeks in August as election officials were preparing to send out mail-in ballots to tens of millions of voters. That failure resulted in at least 1.8 million new change of addresses not being registered in the post office's database. Protests over the killing of Breonna Taylor occurred for the second night in cities across the U.S. Louisville, which declared a curfew at 9 o'clock, saw large crowds. 
New York, St. Louis, Chicago, and Baltimore also held rallies. Meanwhile, Trump tweeted he was, quote, praying for two police officers who were shot during those protests. Republican leaders tried to walk back Trump's refusal to guarantee a peaceful transition should he lose the election. Amid the uproar, Trump said again he's not sure the election will be, quote, honest. The ballots are a disaster. Get rid of the ballots, you'll have a very peaceful. There won't be a transfer, frankly. There'll be a continuation. Joe Biden, the Democratic presidential nominee, was incredulous. What country are we in? Trump was loudly jeered as he visited the late Supreme Court Justice Ginsburg's flag-draped coffin in Washington. A crowd gathered to honor the liberal justice loudly and clearly heckled the president with chants of, vote him out. Ginsburg had asked for her replacement to be chosen by the next president, a request Trump is ignoring. Trump said he would overrule the FDA if the agency issued new, tougher standards for the emergency authorization of a coronavirus vaccine. Trump questioned why the FDA would set a higher standard, claiming, quote, it sounds like a political move. FDA Commissioner Dr. Stephen Hahn shot back that they will not allow untested or unsafe medicines into America and, quote, will not permit any pressure from anyone to change that. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin said he and Speaker Nancy Pelosi have agreed to resume talks on another economic relief package amid concerns the recovery will sputter. Saying he'd spoken to Pelosi 15 or 20 times in the last few days, Mnuchin said he was expecting a new $2.2 trillion package from Democrats. The House, of course, passed a $3 trillion bill in May. Day 1346, September 26th. Trump officially named Judge Amy Conan Barrett as his nominee to the Supreme Court, igniting a partisan battle to confirm her before the election in just 38 days. Barrett would be the youngest and least experienced judge named to the top court. She is also a stalwart conservative endorsed by the anti-abortion Susan B. Anthony list. Barrett's work in jurisprudence has given rise to fears she will vote to overturn rulings such as Roe v. Wade, as well as others involving gay rights, health care, and other issues. The White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows said FBI Director Christopher Wray should quit. Ray told Congress there was no evidence to support Trump's repeated claims of widespread voter fraud and warned, quote, Russia continues to try to influence our elections to aid Trump. Meadows claimed that Ray, quote, has a hard time finding emails in his own FBI, let alone figuring out whether there's any kind of voter fraud. Mary Trump has sued Trump and his siblings for allegedly defrauding her of her inheritance decades ago by manipulating the value of properties and lying to her about the worth of that inheritance. Trump filed the suit after New York Times reporters did a forensic analysis of Trump's finances based on tax documents and learned that Trump had systematically cheated other family members and the government. The Trump administration rescinded an award recognizing the work of a Finnish journalist after discovering that she had criticized Trump on social media. The State Department then lied about the reasons it rescinded the award. Jessica Aro won an International Woman of Courage Award in 2019 for her work in exposing Russian propaganda and misinformation. Day 1347, September 27. In a blockbuster scoop, the New York Times says it obtained Trump's tax records, the very ones he went to the Supreme Court to conceal. The Times reports show a man under deep financial stress with hundreds of millions of dollars in losses and debt. The records show that Trump depends more and more on making money from businesses that put him often in direct conflict of interest with his job as president. Among the key findings were that Trump paid no federal income taxes in 11 of 18 years that the Times examined. In 2016 and 2017, after he became president, his tax bill for both years was only $750. Even while declaring losses, Trump managed to enjoy a lavish lifestyle and took deductions on what most people would consider personal expenses, including residences, aircraft, and $70,000 in hairstyling. 
Also, Ivanka Trump, while working as an employee of the Trump Organization, appears to have received consulting fees that also help reduce the family's tax bill. Also, as president, Trump has received much more money from foreign sources and U.S. interest groups than previously known. Trump flailed at that report, first calling it, quote, totally fake news, made up, and then claiming falsely that it was illegally obtained. Trump also claimed he had paid many millions of dollars in taxes, but was entitled, like everyone else, to depreciation and tax credits. The Times financial analyst also showed that as recently as 2016, Trump was trying to cut deals with Moscow's late mayor Yuri Lushkov as part of a broader push to move into Russia. When that detail broke, Trump publicly and repeatedly accused Hunter Biden of receiving millions of dollars from the wife of Lushkov, asking why, quote, nobody has even any question about it, while claiming he didn't have anything to do with Russia. Those accusations against Hunter Biden appear to be false. And Trump's former campaign manager, Brad Parscale, has been hospitalized after he threatened to harm himself, according to Florida police and campaign officials. When officers arrived on the scene, quote, they made contact with a reportee, wife of armed subject, who advised her husband was armed, had access to multiple firearms, and was threatening to harm himself. Day 1348, September 28th. The fallout from a deeply damaging report about Trump's tax avoidance roiled Washington ahead of the first televised debate. Republican lawmakers reacted with nearly complete silence to the news that Trump paid just $750 in federal income taxes and that he oversees a debt-ridden maze of businesses that are losing hundreds of millions of dollars. Calling it an urgent national security question, Democrats are already making it a campaign issue. Trump is on the hook apparently for $421 million in debt a load that actually disqualifies most people from even obtaining a government security clearance. The report also notes that Trump made more money from holding the Miss Universe pageant in Moscow in 2013, $2.3 million, than from any other pageant. That money came from the Algorov family who were close to Russian President Vladimir Putin. They lost $10 million on the transaction. Trump's 2016 campaign targeted 3.5 million African Americans to deter them from voting, according to a new investigation from Channel 4 in the United Kingdom. Voters targeted for so-called deterrence were disproportionately black, according to a Trump campaign database reviewed by Channel 4. That secret effort concentrated on 16 swing states, several that were narrowly won by Trump after the black Democratic vote collapsed. The effort is said to be devised in part by Cambridge Analytica. The director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has grown increasingly concerned that Trump is sharing incorrect information about the pandemic due to a new member of his task force. Dr. Robert Redfield, who leads the CDC, said that Dr. Scott Atlas is arming Trump with misleading data about a range of issues, including question the efficacy of masks, whether young people are susceptible to the virus, and the potential benefits of herd immunity. Redfield said, quote, everything Atlas says is false. Atlas is a neuroradiologist with no background in infectious diseases or public health. He was brought on after appearing repeatedly on Fox News. In a related story, Dr. Deborah Burks is reportedly so distressed with the direction of the Coronavirus Task Force, she is not certain how much longer she will remain. And Trump wanted his daughter Ivanka to be vice president. She told campaign managers, quote, I think it should be Ivanka. What about Ivanka as my VP? She's bright, she's smart, she's beautiful, and the people would love her. He brought up the idea repeatedly over weeks, trying to sell his staff on the idea, insisting she would be embraced by the Republican base. He was so taken with the concept of his eldest daughter as vice president and so cool to other options, including then-Indiana Governor Mike Pence, his team pulled the idea twice. Ivanka was finally forced to personally tell Trump the idea was a non-starter. 
Day 1349, September 29th, the Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross announced he will end the 2020 census on October 5th in defiance of a federal judge's ruling that allows the count to continue until Halloween. Census supervisors have told field workers to wrap up data collection early. The judge responded by threatening to hold government lawyers in contempt of court. Vice President Mike Pence warned Americans to expect a rise in the number of coronavirus cases in the coming weeks. Wisconsin is now emerging as one of the hottest spots in America. Cases are also rising by 34% as cooler weather sets in. Trump immediately publicly contradicted Pence, claiming falsely that the United States is, quote, turning the corner. In fact, more than one million people have died from the coronavirus worldwide in under nine months. And the U.S. now leads the death toll with over 200,000 fatalities. America is now projecting 400 to 500,000 deaths overall from COVID-19. Meanwhile, Trump pressured the CDC this summer to play down the risk of coronavirus to young children as he pushed to reopen schools. Mike Pence, chief of staff, repeatedly asked the CDC to produce false reports and charts that would show a decline in coronavirus cases among young people. Those are false, of course. Olivia Troy, who quit as one of Pence's top aides, said she regretted, quote, being complicit in the effort, calling the situation a nightmare. Michael Flynn's defense lawyer said she personally asked Trump not to issue a pardon. Sidney Powell was asked by Judge Emmett Sullivan if she had been in contact with Trump. Powell replied, I never discussed this case with the president until recently when I asked him not to issue a pardon and gave him a general update of the status of the litigation. And Trump called evangelicals and their pastors hustlers after reading an article about an Atlanta-based megachurch pastor trying to raise $60 million to buy a private jet. Trump has repeatedly mocked evangelicals behind their backs and told former fixer Michael Cohen that the pastor was, quote, full of crap, but he was delighted by the scam. Day 1350, September 30th. Joe Biden was the consensus winner of a train wreck of a presidential debate that went off the rails and descended into name-calling from the outset. Biden turned to an aggressive and measured performance, calling Trump the worst president in American history and repeatedly challenging Trump on his stewardship of the nation, the economy, and the pandemic. Trump seemed rattled by Biden's poise and tried to bulldoze the debate, telling outright lies and notably refusing to condemn far-right and white supremacist groups. Trump's performance, widely seen as awful, appeared to be an attempt to smear Biden by any means necessary. Trump also seemed to be unable or unwilling to discuss policy issues in any sort of manner. Trump signaled to his supporters they should cause chaos around the election and told the far-right Proud Boys group to, quote, stand back and stand by. The Proud Boys responded on social media by pledging allegiance to Trump and declaring that, yes, we are standing by, sir. Meanwhile, both Biden and Vice President nominee Kamala Harris released their 2019 tax returns. Biden's return shows that he and his wife paid close to $300,000 in federal tax. Harris and her husband paid more than $1 million. Trump paid just $750 in 2017. House Speaker Pelosi and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin have failed to reach a coronavirus stimulus deal. However, House Democrats still plan to pass their roughly $2.2 trillion rescue legislation. Both Pelosi and Mnuchin said an agreement remained possible. In a related story, Trump's former fixer Michael Cohen said his ex-boss's biggest fear is, quote, a massive tax bill, fraud penalties, fines, and possibly even tax fraud. The more it is unraveled, the more he will unravel. It's the reason he's fought so hard to keep it under wraps. And at least four major agencies, including the CDC and the Postal Service, have been pulled into Trump's false voter fraud claims. In one case, the CDC quietly altered its guidance about mail-in voting to make misleading claims about the safety of mail-in ballots. 
Vice President Pence has also played a larger role than previously known in voter suppression efforts run by Republicans. He has overseen several attempts to dissuade voters in key swing states. Nearly every single allegation of voter fraud has collapsed upon examination. Despite this, Attorney General William Barr is reportedly seeking to send federal law enforcement officers to polling stations on Election Day. Day 1351, October 1st. Yesterday's train wreck of a debate shook up the race in profound ways. Republicans rounded on Trump for failing to distance himself from white supremacy, while the Presidential Commission says they will institute changes for the next two debates. Trump's campaign immediately rejected those changes, perhaps signaling he will not participate in the final two debates. Biden, widely seen as the winner, broke fundraising records in the aftermath of Trump's angry, incoherent performance. The next debate is scheduled for October 15th. Meanwhile, Trump's insistence that there is no way the presidential election could be conducted without fraud signaled he is going to try to throw any outcome into the streets if he's not re-elected. Russia is also ramping up a major disinformation campaign using Trump's own statements. Trump's win-at-all-cost strategy also seems to signal he is preparing to try to use the Supreme Court and the House to wage a scorch-earth campaign. Wisconsin is now one of the new hotspots for the pandemic, with an astonishing 22% positivity rate and patients there flooding hospitals. The pandemic is largely out of control in the state because Republican lawmakers sabotaged Democratic Governor Tony Evers' efforts to mandate masks and lock down businesses. They sued and won in a heavily Republican state Supreme Court. Trump is now holding two rallies in Wisconsin this weekend, one in La Crosse and another in Green Bay. Those are two cities with some of the highest rates of infection in the country. Coronavirus cases are now rising in 25 of the lower 48 states. Trump also blocked a new order from the CDC that would have kept cruise ships docked until mid-February. That move was seen as a fig leaf to the politically powerful tourism industry in the crucial swing state of Florida. The current no-sale policy is set to expire on Wednesday. The CDC had recommended that extension, worried that cruise ships become floating viral hotspots. Robert Redfield, who is the director of the CDC, is now reportedly considering resigning. Researchers at Cornell say the largest driver of internet misinformation, conspiracy theories, and falsehoods around the pandemic is Trump. Mentions of Trump made up nearly 38% of the overall, quote, misinformation conversation, making Trump the largest driver of the infodemic. In a related story, right-wing memes and posts now overwhelmingly populate Facebook, according to CrowdTangle. Trump is planning ICE raids and targeted arrests in sanctuary cities across the U.S. next month. Those raids could begin in California as early as this week, according to three U.S. officials. The raids would then expand to cities including Denver and Philadelphia. Two officials with knowledge of the plans described it as more of, quote, a political messaging campaign than a major ICE operation. Day 1352, October 2nd. Trump, his top aide, and the first lady have all tested positive for coronavirus, throwing the election and the government of the United States into chaos. Trump made the announcement at 1 in the morning in a tweet. Trump will now quarantine in the White House for an unspecified time, forcing him to withdraw at least temporarily from the campaign trail just 32 days before the election. It is unclear if Trump is symptomatic. There is no immediate word on how far the infection may have spread among senior White House officials. At 74 and obese, Trump is in the danger zone for COVID-19. He has also repeatedly mocked wearing masks and undercut his own scientists while claiming falsely the United States is rounding a corner in the pandemic. Due to his disdain for masks, his staffers rarely wear them around him. Hope Hicks is symptomatic. It is unclear also whether power will pass under the 25th Amendment to Vice President Mike Pence or if he has been infected. If Vice President Mike Pence is infected, power would pass to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. 
Other people who may have been exposed include Joe Biden, who Trump appeared on the debate stage with, and most of the senior White House staff. Press Secretary Kayla McEnany also addressed the media Thursday, while Hope Hicks, who is symptomatic, visited a fundraiser. Just 37% of voters say the Senate should confirm Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. Post-debate, Trump's approval rating slumped further to 35%. Biden's lead is widened in all national polls to 10 points. These are the Trump Diaries. Anya recorded a full live set at Studio C with Corey Albritton and Stan Wood. This is an excerpt from that Leap Day show.
This is A-W-C-Y-F-M. Researchers have determined mm-hmm. a way to recycle medical waste into cattle feed. Now, now you did say this is food related. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, so what happened was there was the research engineers at Tyson Meat Products mm-hmm. collaborated with medical sciences uh, scientists from the Mallon College of Nutrition mm-hmm. to uh, breed and uh, make augmentations onto dairy cows to allow them to accept and ingest medical waste, digest it entirely. Um, Fascinating. It is. It is. It's incredible. Uh, as what, what what is what is medical waste? Medical Rowan? medical waste is the uh, um, what's left over at the hospital. Um, right. Bedpans. Uh, uh, the things that would be found in bedpans. Needles. Um, yes. Stethoscopes. Uh, um, absolutely. Lab coats. Uh, various tissues. Um, mm. and. Uh, and uh, fluids as well, like human tissues. Yes, yes, presumably, unless it was a, a veterinary um, situation, and that's they've managed to feed cows veterinary waste uh, quite a while ago. Mm. But um, no, now it is capable. We are able to, according to these researchers, okay. be able to divert medical waste. Away from the incinerator, where it would normally go, there's normally this, this these these nutri- this nutrition and this energy is merely burnt to create pollutants that get sent up into the atmosphere. Right, but which now, is not good. No, of course not. It, it's it's horrible for the environment, and more importantly, it's a waste. It's huge waste. And, but now, I believe it's medical waste. I, you understand it, but now it's medical waste to milk. Because these dairy cows, they've milked the cows, mm-hmm. the researchers over at uh, uh, the Mellon College, sure. and they've taken, they've done tests, and they have found that to be 95% free of common pathogens and toxins. 95% free? Well within FDA uh, regulatory limit. Broadcast every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shannon Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.